I'm Laura London, and this is a very special video edition of Speaking of Young. In honor of his upcoming 80th birthday, today we welcome back for his 14th appearance, Dr. Murray Stein in Zurich, Switzerland. He holds a Master of Divinity from Yale University and a PhD in Religion and Psychological Studies from the University of Chicago. He trained as a Jungian analyst at the C.G. Jung Institute Zurich, where he earned a diploma in analytical psychology, the degree of a Jungian analyst, and later went on to co-found the C.G. Jung Institute of Chicago, where he worked as a training analyst. Dr. Stein served as president of the International Association for Analytical Psychology, known as the IAAP, which is the governing body of Jungian analysts, and the International School of Analytical Psychology, known as ISAP Zurich, where he currently works as a training and supervising analyst. He is the author, co-author, editor, and co-editor of books, essays, interviews, and stage plays. His most popular book titles include Jung's Map of the Soul, In Midlife, and The Principle of Individuation, Toward the Development of Human Consciousness. His four-volume Map of the Soul book series includes transcripts from our episodes on the Grammy-nominated group, BTS. In 2020, Chiron began publishing Dr. Stein's collected writings. They include volumes on individuation, myth and psychology, transformation, the practice of Jungian psychoanalysis, analytical psychology and religion, and on July 15th, the latest volume was released on the problem of evil. He joins us today, the 148th birthday of C.G. Jung, to discuss several new books, including the upcoming Festrift to celebrate Dr. Stein's 80 revolutions around the sun, and the upcoming conference, Psychedelics and Individuation, Conversations with Jungian Analysts, to be held at the Pacifica Graduate Institute in California from December 15th through the 17th. A full list of Dr. Stein's 13 previous appearances on this podcast, his books, print interviews, DVDs, and more can be found on Speaking of Jung's special Murray Stein page in our blog section. Please visit the website speakingofjung.com where you will find links to everything discussed in this episode in the show notes. This video interview is being recorded on Wednesday, July 26th, 2023 through the magic of StreamYard. It's great to see you again, Dr. Stein. It's always wonderful to be with you, Laura. Well, thank you. Yeah, yeah. Thank you so much for this sort of impromptu uh, video edition. And uh, our last talk together was, it's been a year. So um, we have a lot to catch up on. And I'd like to begin with how today is, we both sort of celebrate it, right? Jung's 148th birthday. If I had a good voice, I'd sing happy birthday, Carl. Yeah. <laughs> I don't yeah. dare risk it. But uh, yes, it's been 148 years since Carl Jung was born. Um, and um, in two years, it will be 150. Mm -hmm. And that will be celebrated in Zurich at a big Congress, IAP Congress in Zurich in August of uh, 25. So we're already okay. for that. That will be a big celebration. 148th is a, a good number, but 150 is um, exceptionally important. So we're waiting to um, set off the fireworks at that time. Sorry, I didn't get my um, paper ready for the show notes. So that's what, if you see me writing, uh, this is what I, compile during the episode and then people can listeners can go to the website and find links to everything that's mentioned so i didn't know about this there's going to be a 150th birthday celebration for young there in zurich yes and uh as more information comes available i'll be sure to post that on the website and on social media good so I wanted to bring up uh, something new here on Speaking of Jung. Uh, I've compiled some visual aids, some slides, um, to go along with our discussion today. 
This is episode 122 with Dr. Murray Stein. And I did include here Jung's birth chart uh, for the astrologers out there. I know that there are a lot of astrologers interested in Jung because Jung was interested in astrology. And he was born on a Monday in Keswell, Switzerland at 727 SZOT is the time zone. And he has he was born with his son in Leo his moon in Taurus, and he is Aquarius rising. And the source for that is Liz Green's two volume series on uh, volume one is titled Jung Studies in Astrology. And volume two is the astrological world of Jung's Liber Novus. She was given access to Jung's private uh, papers and his private library by the Jung family uh, to write these two editions. And these two volumes, and Sona Shamdasani wrote the foreword for volume one. There will be links in the show notes. So that brings me to uh, something that's kind of in your neighborhood, the Jung family home, which when I was in Zurich and you and I met for the first time in 2015, this was not open to the public, but it is now. And I'm sure you've been there many times, right? And I was wondering if you would share a little bit with the listeners about what they've done um, with the home so that people can actually visit? What the family was confronting were visitors coming to the front door, which you yes. see in the picture here, ringing the bell and wanting to speak to somebody and be shown around. <laughs> so uh, for years and years, this was happening. And I know the, <clears throat> the grandson quite well who lives in the house, Andreas Young and his wife, Franey, uh, what you see above the door, there is the famous uh, quotation, vocatus atque non vocatus Deus adorat, which means called or not called, God is present, uh, which Jung put there very deliberately as an acknowledgement that the unconscious is always with us, whether we know it or not, whether we want it or not. Um, for Jung, the unconscious and the God are more or less equivalent. Uh, that is, it is an invisible spiritual world that surrounds us, that um, either supports us or thwarts us, gets in our way sometimes, trips us up. So that um, that message, uh, as you enter the doorway, was very important. And it gave uh, his patients, put them on notice, that what they would be dealing with when they, they meet with him uh, is not just... Um, the, uh, uh, a person to have a nice conversation with, right. but um, something that really um, might take them into very deep waters of reflection and experience. And um, so as a result of all these um, visitors coming, uh, a decision was made to um, uh, find uh, uh, some people with sufficient funds to create a foundation uh, buy the house and turn it into a museum. And so that's what happened. Uh, I think it opened in around 2018 or so. I was at the opening of mm. it. Um, and what you have now is um, uh, an opportunity to go there, ring the bell, and, and not be turned away by mm. disgruntled family members or uh, irritated people, but to actually be welcomed in and shown around uh, the, um, the the ground floor where the family um, uh, received their guests. It's a, a large living room with a nice fireplace. And then you also will be taken upstairs, up one flight of stairs to Jung's library. Uh, and behind his library, the office where he practiced um, uh, analysis with his patients. Um, and so... Uh, uh, it isn't just open. You can't just go there. You have to uh, make a reservation so that somebody will be there to meet you and escort you. They'll also show you around the grounds a bit, the garden and the back of the house. Behind this house, there is a lake, Lake Zurich, um, which, uh, let's see, yeah, you can see it in these pictures. Um, and a very nice garden. And Jung uh, uh, had some important experiences in that garden. One of them, mm. The last scene uh, in the Red Book and uh, scrutinies where um, he says he walked out into his garden one day uh, during the lunch break 
and this was, I think, in 1916 or so. And um, lo and behold, he saw uh, a shrouded figure in the garden. Now, Jung did not hallucinate uh, normally, nor was he on drugs, uh, but he had a very active imagination. And sometimes he would sense the presence of um, visitors, spiritual visitors. Mm -hmm. He writes this in Memories, Dreams, Reflections. And this shrouded figure in the garden turned out to be Jesus Christ. And then Philemon shows up and there is a conversation between Philemon and Jesus Christ. Um, and um, the last uh, sentence in the Red Book is um, a message that Jesus leaves when Philemon asks him, what do you bring? Um, you know, we have, uh, we have uh, experienced in this garden, we have experienced the serpent, that is the, the force of evil, the power of evil. And the serpent brought us a lot of trouble and, and uh, difficulty and problems. What do you bring? And Jesus answers very cryptically, but I think um, quite in line with um, Jung's thinking also, I bring you the beauty of suffering, he says, and that's where the Red Book closes. So that's something that one can ponder for a long time. That was an experience that Jung had in his backyard, in his garden. So this house, uh, if you know some of the history, um, Jung was visited uh, earlier that year um, by spirits ringing the doorbell. Yeah. And this is in, in Memories, Dreams, Reflections, yeah. and also in the Red Book. And he went and looked, and there was nobody there. Uh, if you can go back a second to the front door, mm -hmm. um, there's a, a just to the right, on the right side of the door, that little black thing there is a, uh, um, a chain that you pull. Mm -hmm. And you pull down on that chain, and it rings a bell inside the door. And this chain was being pulled but there wasn't anybody there. And so uh, Jung writes about this weird experience. And shortly after that, he goes up into his library and he's visited by uh, the spirits of the dead who've come back from Jerusalem because they weren't satisfied there. And then Philemon delivers the seven sermons to the dead, mm -hmm. which is a famous passage in, in the Red Book and was... Um, much talked about uh, when Memories, Dreams, Reflections was first published as well. Uh, so when you go to this museum, if you know some of these things, it has an aura about it, and you can kind of feel the, um, the mystery of the place and things that happened there. Freud visited Jung in this house. He spent, I think, a week in Zurich. He stayed with the Jungs in a guest room. Uh, this was like 1908 or nine. Uh, many famous visitors came there. Mm -hmm. And um, if you, know. oh, I just wanted to mention the photo on the left I took um, because I did not want to trespass. And so I took that photo from the street. From and then the, the photo on the right is from the Young Foundation, uh, the foundation of the work of C.G. Young on their right. website. And there will be a link in the show notes uh, if you would like more information on visiting the home, the museum. And then I also wanted to mention in the interest of time, uh, they have revolving um, exhibits. And the newest one opened in June, it's titled C.G. Jung, Journey into the Unconscious. And there is more information on their website about that as well. Right, I'm sorry. I, yeah. Exhibit uh, that shows a lot of the pictures from the Red Book and a lot of information about the creation of the Red Book. Jung created the Red Book in that house. That's mm -hmm. where he made it, up mm -hmm. in his uh, library. Um, and so, um, you know, when you uh, if you go to this exhibit, uh, you would um, see the place where the book was was created, where he painted the pictures, wrote the calligraphic script into the book, and so on. Um, again, an interesting piece of history um, that uh, for many people has uh, a great meaning.
Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, indeed. That brings us to our next topic, which is a new book uh, was published about BTS. And you and I have done several episodes of Speaking of Young on BTS because of their influence, their interest in your book, Jung's Map of the Soul, which was published in 1998. Did you write it in 98 or did you write it over a, a course of several years? It was published in 98 and it was taken from a transcript of lectures that I gave at the um, Jung Center in Evanston about ah, okay. 10 years earlier. And um, a, uh, a student uh, recorded those lectures. Uh, there were five or six of them. It was called um, a deeper uh, um, fundamental uh, Jungian psychology of deeper view. That was the original title. And then um, I took that transcript and um, worked with it uh, quite a bit. And then we published the book, Jung's Map of the Soul. Mm-hmm. We did, you and I did an episode about that book. It's episode 42, um, but it was back in 2019 we recorded that. So there are some uh, facts that I didn't remember. And the, the photo next to the book cover is the Korean translation of that book. And that's what tipped everybody off to BTS titling their 2019 album, Map of the Soul Persona, and their record label, Big Hit Entertainment, was selling the Korean version of your book on their website, in their bookshop. And the reason why I mentioned that today is because a new book was just released on July 9th. Um, Here's one of the members of BTS. Um, This is from Map of the Soul Persona's music video. And Map of the Soul, as you can see, is written all over this chalkboard. Jung quotes by Carl Jung, and then Persona, Shadow, and Ego is written all over this chalkboard. So the new book that was just released on July 19th is titled Beyond the Story, 10-Year Record of BTS, and it was published in honor of their, or in celebration of their 10-year anniversary. And... uh, we it's currently number one on the New York Times bestseller list, New York Times bestseller list in hardcover nonfiction. Uh, that's quite a feat. But I wanted to ask you to say a few words about this book since you and I have been following this for the past four years, following their development. Uh, I've been to five of their concerts uh, so far, and we've been we've been tracking. I've been tracking pretty much everything that they've done since uh, since we both uh, became aware of who they are. So have you had a chance to uh, take a look at some of the passages from the book? Well, I, I looked at the ones you sent me. Um, okay. Um, I ordered the book, but it hasn't arrived yet. So I haven't read the book. But <clears throat> looking at the um, relevant passages that you sent, excerpted from the book. Yeah. Um, um, I found it very um, interesting to um, uh, read their, uh, some of their remarks and quotations that are, are um, recorded in the book. Um, and the author of the book, <clears throat> at least, uh, is very sensitive to the psychological issues that these young men faced as they were um, advancing into this area of incredible celebrity and fame and the pressures uh, that they felt uh, uh, on them uh, as they were being asked to perform at higher and higher levels of uh, professionalism and exposure. Um, And so they um, obviously needed some psychological assistance as they were going through this process of um, um, dealing with and handling uh, all the complications and psychological stressors and uh, um, problems that come along with being successful. Um, the pressures to keep up um, the uh, level of performance. And I think every successful person, uh, whatever their um, 
domain is, whatever their career is, <clears throat> feels this, especially early on in their um, uh, ascent toward their their level of success. That yeah. uh, you you can't just um, you know win the game, uh, the basketball game, one time. You have to repeat that performance over and over and over again, and that repetition becomes a tremendous stress. And that's what you read about in these quotations. And that they they needed uh, what they ended up calling a map of the soul to express their feelings. Mm -hmm. uh, they also had a very uh, unusual relationship with their fans. Um, I think all um, celebrities have fans, movie stars, singers, and so on. They all have fans. But... Uh, a group of fans, fans formed an association called the Army. <clears throat> and um, there was this very tight relationship between BTS and its Army fans. And it almost became like a couple. And they wanted to tell the Army fans uh, uh, what they were going through, what they were feeling, and how they were dealing with it. And so quite a few of the songs in this um, Map of the Soul series had to do with um, how they're coping uh, and what they're feeling. Um, it was toward the uh, latter part of these 10 years um, since they began. And I think it, it's part of the um, uh, stress that uh, um, goes into the creation of an identity. You know, they, they had to form an identity as a group. Um, and in the end, they did. They, um, BTS has a very particular style, uh, a very particular sound, a very particular way of being on stage, being together. And this had to um, take form over a number of years. And, and there were conflicts in the group and, and emotional issues and hurt feelings and fears and doubts and yeah. all of that. Uh, goes into the formation of a professional identity. Um, and that's what a lot of these uh, quotations that you sent me, Laura, um, uh, indicate that um, the process that they went through was very stressful and they used these concepts that I write about that I got from Jung. Um, they're not original with me at all. I'm, I'm explaining Jung's ideas um, and the um, psychological theories in the book. And these three items that they selected, persona, which is the face with which we meet the other faces, uh, ego, which is the center of our conscious identity, and shadow, which is the things that we fear or hide or don't want other people to see or don't want to look at in ourselves. Those three items were especially important to them. Um, and um, uh, they sing about these um, and they perform these uh, issues um, in their uh, in their musical uh, pieces, um, it's quite extraordinary. And what the fans got from this was a very kind of intimate, personal relationship with uh, with the singers, with the BTS group. They got to know them on an emotional level because they were, in a sense, by talking about persona and persona issues, they were taking off the mask and they were showing what's behind the mask. And so when a person does that in a social situation, say you go to a party and it starts off at a very personal level and you talk about things that are very non uncontroversial and sort of just try to get through it. And then all of a sudden something happens and somebody starts confiding in you uh, and you start hearing them uh, and hear their real story and the mask is slowly removed a bit, you form a intimate, quasi-intimate relationship with them. Um, and this is what happened between BTS and its fans. So they, be, they formed a very tight bond, almost like a marriage, mm. where the, the, the fans would be the feminine part and the BTS is the, is the masculine part and uh, they're sharing uh, back and forth with... Uh, information about uh, their own inner lives and, and uh, they're in a dialogue and in a conversation. And this gave BTS um, 
on the one hand, I think a lot of confidence that they could confide in their fans and that the fans were with them and behind them. It gave them a lot of strength. Um, and they, they rose to an amazing level of performance, I think largely because they felt that, uh, uh, that inner um, support from their fans, but also from within themselves. It's almost as if they went through a quasi-analysis. You know, they're mm -hmm. reflecting on themselves. They're uh, uh, talking about their issues, their emotional issues with each other. I don't know if they had a therapist in their group. Doesn't, I didn't read about that, but they might have had some consultants coming in and helping them deal with their emotional issues. But in the end, they did form a very coherent identity and group that worked together very well. And um, um, this is the story of their, their formation. Mm -hmm. Here's in formation. And what we've got now is a very well put together identity with depth and with self-understanding. The question will be, what do they do with this? Um, when they come back together, um, right now they're dispersed, they're living individual lives, which is very appropriate for their age. They're in their late 20s, early 30s, mm -hmm. having individual relationships with partners and so on. Um, and so they're, they're going through a, a, a kind of liminal stage of their life, life as a group. And when they come back together, it'll be interesting to see. I don't have any predictions, but uh, what they do with what they have achieved in the first 10 years. Mm -hmm. I would just like to mention that this book is not about BTS. It is actually, it, it, it does have a, it was put together by an author, but he interviewed each of the seven members over the course of, I think, three or four years. Uh, well, the idea for the book began in 2019. And uh, you and I both read an interview with the author uh, in for Weverse magazine, which I'll provide a link to. It's excellent. Yeah. And he interviewed all seven members over the course of several years. And this book is their words. So the author just, he did a fantastic job of compiling it, organizing it, and then presenting it in book form. But this book consists of the words from the members directly. And I would just like to read uh, this one passage uh, from page 364. The book is over 500 pages and it's beautiful too. It says, they had seemingly gone as far as they could as superstars. They no longer had to prove themselves to the world. But to these young men in their 20s, the task of drawing the map of the soul in search of answers to the question of who am I was only beginning. So there are a few mentions of a few mentions of Map of the Soul throughout. And then another thing that stuck out at me was one of the members mentioned that he would like to become a psychologist. And that is Suga, who happens to be uh, the member who sang Interlude Shadow. Mm -hmm. And yes, and uh, I, I don't know if you can read I have the slide up on the screen, which yeah. is from the Kindle version of the book, and I've highlighted in yellow. These are Suga's words. Uh, the big, the big reason I studied psychology was was that it's very helpful for my music. And I'm not going to read the whole thing, but uh, I thought that that was fantastic to read. That he would like to become a psychologist to help others that have gone through what he went through. Mm -hmm. Well, you know, that's that's the question. What will become of these um, seven uh, members of BTS? Uh, will they strike out on their individual paths, uh, Suga becoming a, a psychologist, uh, um, others going into their various, some are, are performing as solos now, um, or will they come back um, for another round of um, group uh, performances, um, and for what purpose, and with what mission? What, what, what right. will be their guiding spirit? Mm. You'll come back. You know, once you form your identity, you know who you are. 
um, to the public and to yourself, but you need direction with what are you going to do with that? Mm -hmm. uh, so, um, you know, you look for guidance somewhere. You can look outside yourself for a model um, and fix yourself on a model for a while at least and try to become like that. Or you can go inward, look for the inner light and, and some inner guidance as we work on in analysis. Mm -hmm. But somewhere guidance has to appear so that you know what to do with yourself mm. uh, once you have formed this and reached this stage of life. And that's what I'm interested to see. Um, where, where do they go from here and what do they follow? Mm -hmm. I'm going to go to the next slide, which is the book series that I mentioned in the introduction, the Map of the Soul book series. So uh, Jung's Map of the Soul was published, as I mentioned, in 1998. And as a result of this interest in your book, and it maybe being a little more advanced um, than a beginner would be able to grasp, Chiron, uh, Dr. Stephen Buser and Leonard Cruz, who are both psychiatrists who uh, or the current publishers at Chiron came out with the map of the soul book series. So volume one is persona volume two is shadow volume three is ego. And then the fourth volume is all three of them together with some additional information uh, titled map of the soul seven. And so these are all available uh, in paperback and I believe in Kindle as well. I don't know if you wanted to say a few words of the, about this series before we move on. Well, um, in the series, Laura, um, I do um, comment on some of their songs. Mm -hmm. um, as I think um, some of these texts are actually taken from our interviews when yes. I, I were discussing their various albums. Um, and uh, so if the reader would like to get a, um, a kind of commentary on some of their pieces, uh, that would be in this, uh, in these books, in this series, particularly in this last one. Yeah. yeah. Which brings us to your collected writings, which, uh, as I mentioned in the introduction, uh, Chiron began publishing in 2020, in March of 2020. And seven volumes have been uh, released so far. So I would like to just briefly go through all of them and then have you discuss the current volume, which is my favorite, uh, The Problem of Evil. So your first volume is on individuation. And as you see here on the left is the cover of the book. And then on the right is the back of the book. And I've included those here because it lists all of the, your essays or your other books, so the, your collected writings on this topic that are included in this volume. That's right. Mm -hmm. Did you want to say anything uh, a little bit about each volume? Um, well, uh, I could just say a few words. Um, in this in this first volume, and I, I made this deliberately the first volume because I yeah. think this is my major theme as I look back over um, you know, I began publishing Jungian um, essays uh, in about 1973 or so, and in various places, in journals and, and magazines, and sometimes in collect uh, books. Um, and, and looking back over all of that, um, it became very clear to me that one of the major threads, if not the major thread, kind of the skeleton of the whole body is this theme of individuation, yeah. which I discovered when I um, began reading Jung, and it really opened my eyes as to what is the human being? Mm. Uh, how does he how, or she, how does, how does the human being uh, advance and develop psychologically, spiritually, uh, physically particularly, because that's uh, assumed but in the course of living a, a lifetime. Um, and this was um, uh, Jung's, one of Jung's major contributions to psychology to see development as a lifelong process. Yeah. Psychological development is a lifelong process. It doesn't end. 
um, and it has different stages and phases. And so in the first volume, I collected the, um, some of the writings, not all of them, some of my writings on this topic of individuation. But in the other volumes there, it also touches on this theme because it's so fundamental. Um, I think Jung had two major contributions to psychology. One was the theory of archetypes and the other is individuation as a theory of psychological development. Okay. So in the interest of time, I'll just go through these uh, kind of yeah. quickly. Uh, the next volume is on myth and psychology. The third volume is on transformations. Volume four is the practice of Jungian psychoanalysis. Volume five, analytical psychology and Christianity. Volume six, analytical psychology and religion. And the seventh, which was just released on July 15th, is on the problem of evil. And we really need this today. I've been tweeting quotes from it on Twitter, and I will continue to tweet quotes from it on Twitter, because there is a lot in here. Uh, it's, I think it's around 250 pages, but there's a lot of great material in here. And so would you say a few words about that? Yeah, the problem of evil is uh, something that occupied Jung, uh, certainly from uh, the time uh, that he um, engaged in uh, uh, his active imagination out of which the Red Book, uh, Liber Novus, um, came. Uh, Liber Novus means the new book. And in that uh, work, uh, which extended over a period of several years, uh, Jung engages at a very deep level um, uh, many issues, but among them, one of the major ones is the problem of, quotes, evil. Now, it's a very subtle and difficult question, what is evil? Um, and um, uh, I attempt to um, sort out some of the uh, uh, strands that go into thinking about evil. Um, it's a little bit like uh, asking, um, what is darkness? Mm. You don't know what darkness is unless you know the difference between darkness and light. Um, uh, it's based on contrast. So um, you don't really know what is evil unless you know what is good. Um, and it's in that contrast that you begin to discover that um, evil is, um, uh, something that is contrary to the good, okay? But it exists, and it exists at a very deep level. So there's a lot of argument in philosophy and theology about uh, what is the status of evil as opposed to good? Does it have its own ground uh, ontologically? Um, does it exist as a counter force to the force of good? That's a kind of dualistic uh, version of reality, you know, good versus evil. But it's something that occupies every human philosophy, every age, you know, this discussion of what is good and what is evil, because we have to decide um, what to, um, uh, how to live, and yeah. what, uh, how to make our choices. And we don't always know if we are making choices that conform to um, what is better or what is worse. So it's a, it's a perennial issue. Um, and it's a very deep issue uh, that Jung wrestled with um, to the end of his life uh, and wrote a lot about. So my um, um, work on this uh, takes off from Jung and I developed some further uh, uh, thoughts about it. Um, and I think it is very timely right now because the world is so divided between uh, and, and split between groups of people who project um, evil onto the other group. And so the whole issue of projecting the shadow, projecting evil onto our opponents, finding evil outside of ourselves instead of looking within uh, is an age-old problem um, that psychology makes an attempt to um, uh, work with. Um, to um, uh, before uh, finding evil in the other, 
look within oneself and see if one is projecting. Uh, and often one can find certain features that one that one sees in the other in oneself. And if you do that, uh, it takes the edge off of your aggression toward the other. Mm -hmm. You begin to understand the other. Uh, mm -hmm. and if the other is out to uh, destroy you, um, you know, you, you might see within yourself a similar response toward them. Um, and if you can step out of that um, conflict between good and evil um, to a space that is beyond good and evil that contains both sides, then you're achieving what we call wholeness um, or overcoming the opposition between uh, ego and shadow or light and dark. So it's a, it's a, a deep and a difficult process written about by many, many Jungians uh, um, and, uh, uh, and uh, uh, a lifelong preoccupation of Jung's. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And I have a question about the concept of evil people. Uh, I often wonder, is someone evil or is the behavior evil? I had a, a, a teacher in college, uh, William Sloan Coffin. He was the chaplain at Yale. And I can hear him saying, I think he's quoting St. Augustine, um, hate the sin and love the sinner. <laughs> but it's very hard to separate that in some cases. Yeah. Okay. When you get into the depths of evildoers, you know, the serial killers, the psychopaths, the ones who... Um, um, inflict pain on others or on animals simply for the enjoyment of it. You know, you start feeling that there's something else going on here, that there is a kind of identity between the, the um, actor and the action. And then, you know, you come upon um, uh, mythological representations of that kind of evil in, for instance, Satan in, in Dante, when uh, Dante and, and Virgil descend to the bottom of hell and they find uh, Satan there. Satan is up to his waist in ice. Um, and he has three heads, each of them devouring uh, uh, an individual. And that coldness of um, absolute evil uh, makes, uh, makes Dante faint. He, he can't bear to look at it. If you've ever been in the presence of somebody who has that, you'll never forget it. I experienced it when I was in high school with a, 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 a wasn't a friend, but somebody I had gotten to know a bit. I've never forgotten that feeling. You know it when you're in the presence of it. It's like pornography. Um, you know, the Supreme Court had a hard time defining what is pornography, and one of the Supreme Court justices said, hard to define, but you know it when you see it. Mm, uh, exactly. With evil, when you are in the presence of it, it makes you shudder. It, it is awesome. It's uh, numinous, but it's frightening. Mm -hmm. uh, so that's the problem of absolute evil. And some people, for whatever reason, it could be childhood, um, you know, trauma and abuse and parental abuse. And, you know, there might be psychological reasons for it, but they get identified with this, what Jung called archetypal evil mm -hmm. uh, or absolute evil. And once they get entangled with that, um, it's very difficult for them to get out of it. Mm -hmm. They keep going back to it. Maybe they use alcohol to go back to it. Maybe they use drugs to go back to it. But there's something that's, that's caught them, and they can't get free of it. And that's why we have prisons. You have to protect society from people who cannot free themselves from uh, this, uh, this type of energy. Uh, it belongs to the human condition. Yeah. As all religions know, 
they talk about it in their mythologies and in their theologies. Uh, we learn it in um, in, in uh, Sunday school and so on. But um, you don't believe it until you experience it. Mm -hmm. uh, when you do, uh, you'll never forget it. Mm -hmm. And why is it called the problem of evil? Uh, I noticed that Jung uses that phrase. Yeah, um, yeah, that's a, a good question because it gives us problems. I think right. okay. <laughs> it's, it's hard to think about, and it's um, certainly hard to solve. Impossible mm. uh, to solve. Mm -hmm. um, uh, the um, uh, problem of evil uh, uh, is is a human problematic you know uh, it's 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 what makes human life uh, um, difficult and we're always trying to solve it but mm -hmm. it's really insoluble mm -hmm. uh, I think the best we can do is become conscious of it and uh, try to protect ourselves from it um, and keep a distance from it. Uh, but the other side of the problem is that we tend to project it uh, onto maybe people who have a hook for it, you know, mm -hmm. are sure. with evil. But that doesn't rid us from it. We, you know, the, the idea of the scapegoat, which is an ancient idea, is you load all the evil and sins onto the goat, drive them into the wilderness, and that purifies the community. So, um, you know, uh, inmates in prisons can be mm. the recipients of, of that kind of projection. Okay, mm -hmm. we're all in jail, and now we're rid of it. Now society is purified, but you never get rid of it. Mm. It's around somewhere. So, so it is, it's yeah. Always a problem. <laughs> always a problem. Always and. A uh, I just want to mention that the book uh, was number one in the philosophy of good and evil on Amazon uh, right after its release. So congratulations uh, on that. And there you have another book, uh, this one you edited and uh, the, the um, cover that you see on the left will be updated because another essay has been added and the title is the shadow and the problem of evil, five examinations. It is now six examinations. And when will this be released? Uh, I think soon, right? I think in October. Um, okay. With the editor now, the sixth essay that was added is number three, uh, Valerie Appleby. And it's about the creation of the atom bomb. Um, and it's a very interesting article because her family was involved in that. Uh, um, New Oppenheimer and um, uh, the film now is getting a tremendous amount of attention. Yeah. Uh, so one thing about evil that we have to keep in mind is that it is a judgment we make. It is a force on the one hand, but on the other hand, it is also a judgment. And coming to the conclusion that something is good or evil is a very difficult ethical reflection. Uh, and we have to be very careful with labeling things evil because they're usually much more complex than we um, realize at first glance. So the question of dropping the atomic bomb, for instance, on civilians in Japan, um, you know, do you judge that to be evil? Some people have judged it to be evil. Other people have judged it to be necessary to end the war, mm -hmm. and, uh, actually to save lives. Mm. Uh, but it's, it's, it's an open question, and it's important to keep these questions open because yes. the reflection on good and evil is ongoing, and it has to be a, a constant uh, um, uh, uh, effort on the part of um, communities and uh, so-called civilization, civilized people, to keep on thinking about um, this issue. Uh, and not just uh, projecting it away into or sweeping it under the carpet and saying we are good and they're evil. Um, it's a it's a perennial topic, and so that's what this book uh, raises. Also, Bridget Egger, who's an analyst in Zurich, has spent her um, professional life uh, 
working on what she calls psychicology. You know, the, uh, the damage that human beings are doing to the ecosystem. And she's very careful about not labeling or, um, or assigning blame just to one group of people. Oh, yeah. it's the, the oil people and so on. It's all of us. It's, uh, it's our unconsciousness. It's, uh, and to raise consciousness about A, what is happening, and B, uh, what can we possibly do to, um, uh, by, by becoming conscious of that, to uh, perhaps uh, move things in another direction? Um, so important because that's a huge issue that the whole human race is facing. What's happening to the planet? Yeah. Uh, that, that simple line, it's our unconsciousness. So I wrote that down. Yeah. You have to be reminded of that constantly. Um, I added these to our slide presentation because this topic is not new to you. Uh, you edited Jung on Evil, which is part of the Encountering Jung series. Uh, this was from quite a while ago, right? Yeah. Uh, you selected the, um, the chapters uh, written by Jung and you wrote the introduction. So this is also a great book that's available, Jung on Evil. Um, selected and introduced by Murray Stein. And then I think this was from 2020. Uh, this is from Routledge, Temporality, Shame, and the Problem of Evil in Jungian Psychology, an Exchange of Ideas. And this is by you and Elena, uh, would you pronounce Karamazza, she's an Italian analyst who contacted me. Um, and so we had some dialogue and discussion and this book came out of it. Uh, some of these are essays that are included, uh, my essays that are included in volume seven. Okay. <clears throat> and, um, but uh, yeah, she um, uh, she has since then written a book on um, absolute the absolute shadow, I think it's called, and I wrote a foreword for it. So this seems to be a special area of interest of hers, Elena Karamazza. Is she in? private practice in Italy or yes. is she a professor? She's in private practice. Okay. Yeah. Uh, I will find a link to her book. Uh, is it a relatively new book? Um, yes. I think within the last two years, it's, um, I forget the exact title, but it's something like the absolute shadow. Okay. I'll find that and yeah. provide a link in the show notes. And that brings us to another new book that uh, will be released in honor of your 80th birthday. It is titled Individuation Psychology, and it is a, a compilation of essays in your honor. And there will be a webinar on your birthday, September 2nd, 2023, right. hosted by Chiron Publications. Uh, it is also, they'll be launching the book on that date as well. And I will be there. And when it comes available, I will provide more information on how other people can join in on this webinar. So I'm really looking forward to that. Um, this isn't a surprise. You know about it. I know about it, but I don't know the essays in the book. So that was. Oh, be okay, great. I don't either. I don't either. They they didn't provide me with the table of contents, probably because they knew that I would post it on social media or something. So I'm really excited about this and looking forward to uh, having a celebration webinar, something fun and positive and happy and up uplifting uh, during this um, not so. Uh, not so easy time that uh, we all seem to be having. Yeah. So what do we have here? Okay, this is something else that's new. It is available on YouTube. It's audio of your conversation with Henry Abramovich, who is another Jungian analyst. I actually had both of you on the podcast for episode 49 uh, on, wait a minute, no. I had you on, I think, episode 47. I'll look while you tell us all about my lunch with Thomas. Okay. Well, Henry and I have written a couple of plays together. <clears throat> and um, this is a short one that we composed. Um, 
and it's it's about uh, my relationship with Thomas Arts, who you see in the picture there with yep. me. And Thomas Arts approached me um, uh, with a with a with an idea to create a series of books, uh, which would be compilations of essays on the Red Book, and we decided to call the series Jung's Red Book for our time searching for soul under postmodern conditions. And um, uh, it began with a lunch uh, uh, at, a, at a restaurant in Zurich. And so this podcast uh, is, um, is set, uh, the story is set on the train between Zurich and um, Eranos, uh, Skona, Switzerland. And as we're traveling on the train, I'm telling Henry about my relationship with Thomas and how this series came about, which was a kind of magical story. I didn't think so much would come out of it, but mm. in the four volumes, each of these volumes contains 18 essays by different Jungian analysts from around the world. So, um, and then there's a fifth volume um, as well. Uh, but uh, we were planning to have a, a, a gala final um, uh, symposium at Eranos, um, which is a kind of magical place in southern Switzerland, uh, where Jung gave many, many lectures um, in 2020. Yeah. And um, COVID hit. So yeah. we were planning for the spring. We had to uh, postpone it. and. In the meantime, Thomas caught COVID and was um, quite heavily uh, ill with that. They took him to an emergency room and there the doctor discovered that he had a heart condition. So they rushed him to another hospital, operated on his heart. And as he was recovering from that, he had a massive stroke and he died on Easter Sunday morning, 2020. So he wasn't alive to celebrate that gala event, uh, which then did take place in 2022 uh, in Ascona at a place called Monte Verita. Um, this podcast is the story of my relationship with Thomas, what came out of it, and, um, um, and the um, um, sad uh, ending. But um, when we did finally hold the conference uh, in 2022, I did have the strong feeling that Thomas Spirit was with mm -hmm. us. It was a really marvelous gathering of people, uh, about 120 people uh, listening to speakers on Jung's Red Book and all of this in honor of, of Thomas's uh, many contributions and his marvelous energy. That's the fifth volume, yes. Uh, the dedicated to the memory of Thomas Arzt. Yeah, so volume five was uh, released, uh, I think it was in December of 2022, and it is the presentations that were delivered at that Aranos conference right. uh, in 2022, and it is uh, dedicated to the memory of Dr. Thomas Arzt, who did appear on this podcast. It was episode 49 on Jung's Red Book for Our Time. And your uh, your My Lunch with Thomas is with Henry Abramovich. And he was on this podcast with you in episode 47, uh, where you discussed your play, The Analyst and the Rabbi. Oh, yes. Which is available on YouTube. Yes. Okay, I'm just writing that down for the show notes. Um, before we start to wrap this up. Uh, next, we have uh, our last item, which is the upcoming conference on psychedelics. It's titled Psychedelics and Individuation, Conversations with Jungian Analysts. And there will be a book that comes out of this uh, titled Psychedelics and Individuation Essays by Jungian Analysts will be published by Chiron in November. You will be speaking at this conference, which will be held on campus at Pacifica Graduate Institute in California from December 15th through the 17th. Uh, there will be other speakers that have appeared on this podcast, like Nancy Swift-Verlotti, and I will be doing two... and. 
Leslie Stein, who is one of the editors of the book. And I will be doing a couple of episodes about this conference uh, leading up to it. So would you tell us a little bit about it? Psychedelics has made a comeback in, in the last uh, five years or so. Uh, uh, you know, it was, um, it was seen as the uh, wave of the future in the 60s and early 70s. Timothy Leary and LSD and Lucy in the Sky with Diamonds and mm -hmm. so on. And many people thought that it would transform the world into a, uh, into a better place because of the visions that people sometimes have under the influence of LSD. But they aren't always happy visions, aren't always good visions, but they're certainly very powerful uh, experiences like big dreams would be in, in, um, uh, in your sleep. Um, and so, uh, but then the psychedelics were banned um, uh, from the marketplace and it went underground and really became um, something that uh, Jungians were not at all interested in. Previous to that, there had been some experiments using LSD on certain kinds of patients to see if that would open the door to the unconscious in a way that had been blocked by their defenses and so on, but mm -hmm. it, it didn't get very far in the, in the early stage. Now, um, LSD and psilocybin, the mushroom, and some other drugs are being used to treat um, certain chronic mental conditions like um, uh, PTSD and uh, obsessive compulsive disorder and um, depression and anxiety disorders, so on, particularly in uh, older people. Um, but it's be, and it's being done very carefully uh, by professionals, and it seems to be uh, producing some pretty good results uh, in the way of therapeutic uh, 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 improvements, uh, so mental improvements uh, on these conditions. Mm -hmm. and then was raised, uh, can Jungian analysts use it carefully to mm. promote individuation? Mm. And that would be the topic of discussion in this book and at this conference. Uh, it's an open question. I think there are many different opinions about it. Some of the authors in the book um, have had extensive experience with it personally and with some of their clients. I have not. I've never taken a... a um, uh, psychedelic drug. I have had some patients who have had with mixed results, sometimes okay. pretty good and sometimes terrible. Um, I would hesitate ever to suggest somebody using it at this point, but I'm open to the discussion. I think it would be very interesting. And what um, uh, Leslie Stein has set out to do is to try to create a protocol or um, a, a list of things to think about for Jungian analysts if they want to engage um, in the use of psychedelics in their practices. So it's a very practical orientation. Mm -hmm. That's a great idea. Yeah. And I think that will be the final product of all this discussion, that something like that will come out for analysts to consult and and use in their practice. Mm -hmm. And would you, I just have one last question, would you address the rumor that there were psychedelics involved in the writing of the Red Book by Jung, that, that there's a rumor out there about that. And I've been asked a couple of times by people, um, actually not even asked if it were true, but they came at me with that that was a fact and then they wanted some more information. It's inconceivable. No. Inconceivable. Okay. Inconceivable. Absolutely not. Well, LSD wasn't discovered until the 1940s. So it would have had to be something like mushrooms. Jung just wasn't into that. He had such an active imagination. Yeah, right. Didn't need, didn't need yeah. it. Right. Absolutely. That's how I feel. Don't need it. Don't need it. Yeah. So he was very happy with working, uh, happy and satisfied, let's say. He had enough to work on with his dreams and his active imagination and these breakthrough visions that would come to him that I described before. Uh, just walking in his garden, he had some of those kind of experiences out at Bollingen as well. Um, he had his plate full. He didn't need anything more. So, no, that's out of the question. Out of the question. Well, thank you so much for clearing that up. 
And I think that that brings us to the end of our time today. We've covered a lot of ground and uh, we will look forward to seeing you uh, at the webinar on September 2nd. Thank you, Laura. It's been a pleasure. Thank you for joining us. I'm just going to read the outro. Please visit our website, speakingofyoung.com, for more information on everything discussed in this episode. There you will also find all of the previous episodes of this podcast, eight years worth, available to stream or download commercial free. Speaking of Jung is also available on YouTube podcasts, which you can access by subscribing to this channel, Jungian Laura. It's free. Just click the subscribe button below. With special thanks to Dr. Stephen Buser and Jennifer Fitzgerald at Chiron Publications and to the BTS Army, I am Laura London, and you've been watching a very special video edition of Speaking of Young. <laughs>